Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you an opportunity to uh, make sure that you are in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we can come together this evening to study your word, to reflect upon what it means and how it impacts the way we think and how we live, conduct ourselves in conversation, how we think about your creation. Father, as we continue our study in Romans 1, we pray that you'd help us to correctly understand what your word says and that God the Holy Spirit would help us in terms of application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to start off with some review from last time simply because I'm digging into some areas that are a little heavy. Some of you may think we're flying off into the ozone tonight. Some of you, if you've never had a philosophy course or basic uh, theology course where you get into certain philosophical things, then you're going to maybe feel a little bit lost. Those of you who've gone through the framework series with uh, Charlie Clough, uh, you're not going to be quite so lost. You'll just uh, see a few familiar things, and uh, hopefully we'll take you to another level. Okay, so this is uh, going back to the fact that this is a crucial passage for understanding a lot of different things, and it is a broad-scope passage from Romans 1.18 down through the end of chapter 1, uh, down through verse 32, where we're looking at certain patterns and trends. And the anchor pa- paragraph here is this paragraph uh, that is, actually starts at 18 and goes down through through 23. And so I'm going to go over very quickly what I went over last time, maybe skip a few slides, but I just want to make sure that you remember a couple of the things that I said last time. First of all, based on Romans 1, 18 and 19, we know that... God says that he has constructed the creation in such a way and he has constructed the human soul in such a way, being in the image of God, so it's a reflection of who God is, that there is an inherent knowledge of God within every human being and that this inherent knowledge of God is also also is connected in some way to an external testimony of who God is by his creation so that we can look at his creation and there is something nonverbal that attests to the power of God and his invisible attributes. Now, that's not the same thing, because we're going to get into this later on. That's not the same thing as the so-called arguments for the existence of God. The so-called arguments for the existence of God are an attempt 
to try to articulate this in a philosophical structure. But as I'll point out, there are some basic problems with most of these uh, most of these arguments. And so, and, but because this is this knowledge is prior to an argument. Philosophical arguments are different. This is prior to an argument. This is when somebody first comes to God consciousness and they're three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of age before they ever hear of any kind of argument, philosophical construct uh, to argue for the existence of God. There is something inside them that tells them without a shadow of a doubt that God exists. And they just, when they look on God's creation, it is as if God has branded every thing in his creation from the smallest subatomic particle, uh, from the smallest element inside of a molecule, all the way up to the largest element with his brand. So that when a human being is growing up and as they come to self-consciousness and then God, con- in self-consciousness we realize we're not the dog, we're not the cat, and that that, that thing we keep at the end of this thing that flies around in front of us, we put in our mouth and bite. That's part of us. Self-consciousness is when we identify where those boundaries are, where we stop, and everything else sort of begins. And sometime after that, we come to a recognition that, that God exists. It is, it's almost, it's not necessarily pre You can't really put a time on it, but this is not a, an intellectual or rational uh, construct. This is not something that, that uh, it's not mysticism. It is just this sort of internal connection that God builds into every single person so that they know God exists. And when they look on these external things that God created, there is, they, they see that brand. Everything God creates speaks out that who the creator is. You don't have to even pick it up and turn it upside down and see made by God. You just look at it and it says it just screams it at every person's soul. So this is why and it's the rejection of that that is the basis for God's judgment on mankind within human history. So that's what Paul means when he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that denial of truth is basically you substitute what is true, and it's true because God defines reality a certain way, with a fantasy that is conjured up by the rebellious human soul. So once the soul rejects God... It seeks for explanations of ultimate existence. It seeks for explanations of knowledge. It seeks for explanations of right and wrong on its own terms, apart from God, because that's the essence of rebellion, isn't it? And the Garden of Eden, Eve is going to evaluate whether God knows what he's talking about when he said, when you, if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So what's the basic issue there? In the garden. It's an issue of authority. It's an issue of truth. It's an issue of how do you know something is true? And so it is, it's those questions, those ideas that really do reverberate down through history and each individual, uh, has, has to make up their own mind in relationship to that. Romans 1.20 states that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. Notice, That comes after verse 19. 
Verse 19 puts the internal knowledge of God prior to verse 20, doesn't it? In verse 19, you're saying that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And then verse 20 explains how God shows, showed it to them. So then I talked about the basic issues of life. Basic issues of life is why are we here? At some point, I think all of us can think back to a time when we began to sort of ask, well, is there a God and why am I here and what's God's purpose for my life if there is a God? And so we began to wrestle usually at a an age somewhere in adolescence up through our 20s where we wrestle with some of these issues. Sometimes they come a little later. But for most people, they're in that period of time from about uh, probably 10 or so up to about uh, 30 or so. It's funny, the older people get, they've already answered that, and they don't really want to go back and rethink it. They, want to, they don't want to take the time to go reevaluate those decisions they made unless there's some crisis event that occurs in their life and they lose everything or they lose a loved one or they, they're on the verge of death. Uh, they're told they're about to die because of cancer and they've got three weeks and then uh, they're going to go meet Jesus. And it's those kinds of things that people go back and perhaps rethink decisions they made earlier. So we ask these questions. We usually start at the bottom asking questions about what's right or wrong and how should we behave or conduct ourselves or live our lives in certain areas. And so this is in the arena of, of ethics where you talk about marriage, family, law, politics, economics. Uh, these things have to do with uh, social structures, but ultimately it's how, what's the right way to conduct ourselves. And then the question is, well, if you're going to say that's right and that's wrong, this is right and that's wrong, on what basis do you know that? How do you know what's right and what's wrong? And that's epistemology. That's truth claims. How do you know what's true? And then you say, well, because God told me or because I just feel it in my heart or whatever the answer is. And that's an appeal to authority. So once again, what you've got is a truth claim that is resolved by an appeal to authority. Now, authority is going to be a big word that we're going to we'll talk about in the midst of this. And then I talked a little bit about general revelation and natural revelation. It was interesting because several of you went to hear the um, uh, hear John Eidsmo last week on Christianity and the Constitution, and in his in his uh, talk discourse, he was talking about terms like natural revelation, which started off as a good term, but then it kind of becomes a bad term. As, as it goes through the Enlightenment, and then it begins to sort of take off on its own. And we, we looked at that, and so he, uh, he mentioned that some, so I've given you some good background on that, that particular terminology. When it comes to revelation, we talked about two terms, general revelation, which is the nonverbal disclosure from God as contained in his works of creation and providence. It's, it's, we, we see the universe, we see a molecule, a flower, the design of a giraffe's brain, uh, all of these different things, and that says something nonverbal. But it, it could say a lot of different things, and we can only tell, uh, ultimately, general revelation has to be uh, interpreted in light of special revelation, which is the direct verbal self-disclosure of God to his creatures. This could be a theophany. It could be God speaking to a prophet, something that was not recorded in Scripture. There are things that Daniel saw, John saw, that were not to be recorded, that would be sealed up. Um, but it, mostly, this for us, this refers to the Scripture. But the problem is that in getting it from the Scripture... 
we have a little problem because we have this fallen nature that gets in the way. And the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. It's like we have this, this translator. And I pointed out that this isn't like the Calvinist view of total inability. Because in the Calvinist view, we're, they, they misunderstand that metaphor about being spiritually dead, and they think it means spiritually, that it means that a person can't do anything um, at all towards God. They would even say that we would say positive volition is non meritorious. They would say you can't even do that, you're, you're dead. You're just unable. And, and as I pointed out last time, you have passages like 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 that talks about how Satan blinds the mind of the unsaved. Well, if they're as blind and dead as Calvinists say they are, Satan doesn't need to additionally blind them, does he? They're already blind, and it's impossible for them to respond. So uh, there's an ability to respond but it is not an ability that it has any merit or that is the basis for any blessing or salvation from God other than a they desire to know God, God will give them further revelation. Romans 1.20, Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, understood by things that are made, even his eternal power, Godhead, so they're without excuse. So we have words like uh, clearly seen, Understood. These, there are ten different words that relate to knowledge in these verses. Um, and it's important to uh, emphasize those. They, were, they became futile in their thoughts, in their thinking. Futile is mataio, mataio, which means to make worthless. So once you make this ethical decision or spiritual decision to reject God, then it has an epistemological consequence. In other words, if you make a decision to reject God, it starts messing with your thinking. And the more you reject God, the more it distorts your thinking. And the more your thinking gets distorted, the more you, cre- you, you create fantasy worlds and you live in those, live in those fantasy worlds. So they become uh, futile or worthless in their thinking. And um, the word there for thinking is the word dialogismos, which has to do with their, abil- their reasoning. It's not that they can't come up with logic. I mean, you can go through all kinds of ancient writers to modern, modern philosophical writers who've done tremendous work on logic. But their starting point is wrong, so their end point is wrong. If you start at the wrong place, it doesn't matter how good your directions are. If you're not starting where the directions start, you're not going to end up where the directions end. You will miss your destiny. And so that's what this is talking about there their reasoning process becomes uh, distorted because they've rejected the starting point, which is God. And so they became futile in their thoughts, and uh, their uh, foolish hearts then are are darkened. Uh, Asunetas, they're senseless foolish because they're thinking. So God doesn't have a very high opinion of the thought capabilities of triple PhDs from Harvard who reject God's existence. He says that professing to be fools or professing to be wise, they become fools. And so again, both these words, uh, morino, for, uh, which is where we get our word moron, or moros is the Greek noun, and sophos is the verb, so, so, you combine them, you get a sophomore. Uh, 
sophomore is always somebody who thinks he's in his second year of a course of curriculum, and he thinks he knows more than he does. It applies to 10th graders. It applies to second year in college. It applies to second year in seminary. I see so many seminary guys fall out between their, in their second or third year, begin to go, drift off course because they think they know more than they do because they've just been pumped up with a lot of information and a lot of data, but they haven't figured out how to think it all through yet and how to put it together. comes back to a uh, wisdom and authority issue. So from all these verses... What's the basic problem? Is the basic problem that man's foolish heart is darkened? Is the basic problem that his reasoning process, his dialogismos, is out of kilter? No. The basic problem is what? He rejects God, negative volition. That's what starts everything going. So the basic problem here, when you look at the options, is the basic problem spiritual, intellectual, social, or education? It's spiritual, that there's a spiritual rejection of God, and this changes the person's view of reality. They have that Now they're living in a fantasy world, and they have to figure out how to explain everything within their sense of autonomy or independence, uh, independence from God. Let me point out this same, same thing, these same words are picked up in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, as Paul describes the Gentiles. He said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. That is, you don't live your life like the Gentiles do, because you don't, you're not supposed to be thinking like that anymore. You have a different foundation for your thinking. And they walk in the futility of their mind. And here we have the word for futility here is the noun form of matayao, which here it's matayotes, meaning emptiness or worthlessness of their, of their thinking, their news. We had the verb nuao in Romans 1. Uh, having their understanding, uh, having their understanding darkened, this is a different word for understanding than what we had in Romans 1, but it's a synonym, the, uh, the, um, uh, dianoeo. It's a uh, dia plus uh, a noose, which is the word for noun, so it's their understanding, the way they think things through, uh, is darkened, being alienated. And see, that's describing their circumstance. They're alienated from the life of God. That's the ultimate cause. Why are the Gentiles messed up in their thinking? It's because they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And here heart refers to their, uh, their souls, specifically the thinking part of their soul. And so this leads to ethical transgression, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So there's our 20-minute review from last week. Now we start getting into some of the fun stuff. Because the issue that we've seen here is knowledge. How does a person know God? Now, if you're talking to an unbeliever, how are you going to talk to him about the gospel? And option A is you shoot him with your gospel gun. You just do a drive-by. As long as I can just say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, all is good. And that's the wrong answer. Because... That doesn't necessarily mean anything to somebody. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you know they, they know anything about who Christ is? How, how do you know that they don't have some Hindu view of, of Christ or some uh, or just as a meaningless word to them? 
Uh, what do you mean believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Who's that? And the more we live in a pagan, our pagan world, the more, uh, the, the more we have to pay attention to that because you, even when I remember how shocked my seventh grade teacher was, and that was more than two or three years ago, when she was telling us about that there was a student in her class, wasn't in the same class I was in, but in another class, that never heard of Jesus and didn't know who Jesus was. And that was a long time ago. Most of us were in high school or junior high at that time, so uh, are not even born yet for some of you. But that goes, so today, which much more, much, much worse, the only thing they associate with the name Jesus is a swear word. So how do you know? Ten times Paul uses words related to knowledge in these verses, and it's connected to truth, and it's connected to a spiritual decision. So we have to review one of my uh, favorite charts, and that is the basis for knowledge. Now this relates to authority. Authority answers the question, how do you know something is true? To what authority do you appeal? Here you are. And you're a Christian, and you're talking to an unbeliever, and we're going to assume the unbeliever is consistent within their thought pattern, and you're consistent within yours. How are you going to communicate to them? To what authority will you appeal when you say that the Bible makes truth claims? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. And they say, well, how do you know that's true? You can't just say, well, because the Bible says so. Well, how do you know that? I mean, you've got the Bible, you've got the Quran, you've got the Bhagavad Gita, you've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you, you know, all these things have happened. People have translated, retranslated, retranslated the Bible down through the centuries, and you've got these manuscripts and those manuscripts. How do you know that that's true? How do you know that's not just somebody's opinion? And remember, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.15 that we are to give an answer, or 1 Peter 3.15, rather, give an answer for the hope that is within us. Often when we're witnessing to somebody, it's not a monologue. It's not a drive-by, one-shot decision. It is a, a, a conversation. It's a dialogue with them. And it's, it depends on who the person is. You may just have one time when you're with them, and it may be a short time. But in many cases, there may be people you work with, maybe people in your family, maybe neighbors, who knows who they are, people you uh, come into contact with. And so it's an ongoing conversation. So um, we have to think about these things. What, to what do we appeal for authority? Now, there's four ways in which man has developed uh, his sense of authority in terms of knowledge. The first three that I'm going to put up here are ways that are valid in a limited sense. They're valid in a limited sense. You can apply any one of them in isolation and come up with some things that are true, but only the, the last one gives you truth with a capital T. So the first system is rationalism. And in its pure sense, rationalism is the idea that we're born with certain innate ideas, and, and, but, and, and so we can start from those innate ideas and through a method of uh, logic, and when I say independent use, I mean independent from the Bible, 
that through the use, a rigorous use of logic and reason, we can answer all the questions in life. We can come to truth. We can decide whether or not there's a God. We can decide the nature of man. We can decide what's right and wrong. We can make all kinds of decisions. And if you don't think that's true, just ask somebody if they think that uh, uh, if um, uh, the decision that was made today or that wasn't made today is right or wrong. They say it's right or wrong. They've made a decision. What's the basis for your decision? Any, pick any decision, any contemporary event. Now, empiricism, in its technical sense, is based on sense perception. Uh, the idea was in, among the empiricists that were born with a tabula rasa, there's no total depravity, there's no fallen nature. We're just like a, an erased tablet, tabula rasa. It's just erased. It's a blank slate. And your knowledge comes from whatever you experience through your, your taste, touch, sight, whatever. Now, rarely do we meet people outside of the philosophy classroom that are pure rationalists or pure empiricists. Usually they're a mix of the two, and that's what most scientists are. They mix rationalism and empiricism, and what's critical is that their, their method is the same. It's an independent use of logic and reason. So if you grant their assumptions about whatever it is they're talking about, if you grant their assumptions... And if they're consistent in their use of logic, then their conclusion will follow. But that's where it gets slippery because they, come, they approach things with an assumption that God's not there. If they're an unbeliever, they're approaching with the assumption that the God, not just any God, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Trinitarian God, isn't there. The God of the Bible isn't there. That's their starting point. And what did Paul say earlier in Romans about how that affects their dialogismos, their dialogue, their ability to reason? It messes it all up. It becomes empty and worthless. So you've got to be aware of the fact that nobody out there is just just uh, Mr. Neutral. The other thing is that they are operating just as much on faith as you and I are. And this is one of the real problems that came out of the Middle Ages and came out of the Enlightenment is this attempt to juxtapose faith and reason. And this really came out of a lot of Roman Catholic uh, theology in the Middle Ages because they were blending the Scripture with the study of Greek philosophy. First it was Plato, and then later it was Aristotle. And so... Uh, they were they, they and this is why you have this conflict with with uh, um, Gal- Galileo. It's not a conflict between faith and reason. Galileo is com- com- committed to an empirical system of science, and the Roman Catholic Church isn't committed to the Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church was committed to a Platonic Plato, a Platonic or Aristotelian view of, of nature. And according to the ancients, the earth was the, the, the center of the solar system. It was geocentric. The earth was the center of the solar system, not, not the sun. And so uh, Galileo came along and said, no, based on my empirical observations with a telescope, the sun's at the center, center of the universe. And they said, oh, you're heresy, because they had adopted human viewpoint thinking from ancient Greek philosophy, and made it dogma within the Roman Catholic Church. And so you don't have a challenge between faith and reason. You have a fight between 
ancient reason and modern reason. Faith had not, the only reason faith had anything to do with it was because they were, they both had the belief that man on the basis of unaided reason and experience could arrive at truth. Every system always operates on faith. There are, at some point, you have to believe something. When Descartes said, um, I think, therefore I am, and then he starts there, he thinks he can get to the existence of God through the rigorous use of logic. His faith is in human ability. Same thing happens in, um, in, with empiricism, the thought that you can get from, from sense perception to the existence of God. So it's always faith in human ability. Now, mysticism also puts faith in human ability. It starts with, uh, though it starts with inner private experience. Where are innate ideas in rationalism? Inside your head. Where are inner private experience? experiences inside your head. So they're both starting with something that's inside the head. But the difference is that the mystic uses a non-logical, non-rational, non-verifiable method to get to his conclusion. He's not getting there through, through logic. That's why it's so hard to talk to somebody who says, you know, I just know it's true. You know, don't confuse me with facts. You can't argue with me. It's true because I just know it. You know, try having a conversation at some point with a Mormon. Their ultimate truth claim is, I know it's true because I've had the burning in my bosom. It's it's totally experience-based. It's it's a mystical experience. So that's there. And some people just blend all three together. The difference is that all three of these are operating in human autonomy or independence from the authority of God. And that's the last category. It's revelation and some, sometimes you'll see this even classified as authority, that we're told something by an authority. Now, that's where things get kind of fuzzy when you're reading through the history of the Middle Ages and, and the Enlightenment because they'd say, well, the Enlightenment was a rejection of the authority of the church. And so they're rejecting any external authorities and they're going to rely on man. But they've misconstrued the issue. The issue isn't uh, rejection of of the authority of the church. The issue is rejection of what God has said in his word. And so when we start with the objective revelation of God, whether it's the nonverbal general revelation and then we go from there to special revelation and build on that, then we use logic and reason, but our starting point is different. So we're using it under the authority of God to get to our uh, to get to our conclusion. Now, you've got to hang with me as we go through this, because what happens is when you get into some areas of, of discussion, how do you communicate to an unbeliever? Well, there are those that will say, well, you have to use reason. Really? Well, all they have is an autonomous use of reason. Aren't you compromising yourself to go over there? If you say it's empiricism, you have the same problem. If it's mysticism, you have the same problem. We'll get back to that later. So as believers, we have to, however we're talking with an unbeliever, we have to make sure we don't compromise the integrity of the Word of God in the process. We have, basically what that means is that you have to realize that the person you're talking to, whether it's Christopher Hitchens or your 8-year-old kid next door to you, is they already know God exists through internal evidence and external evidence. 
And what you're going to be, God's going to use you to do is in the communication of the gospel and how you can answer questions or ask questions to get them to think is you're going to expose the fact that they've got something stuffed down in a box in the corner of their soul and that's that knowledge of God that's going to pop out. And sometimes when it pops out, people get real mad at us because they don't like the fact that all of a sudden we have reminded them that there might be a God to whom they are uh, accountable. When we look at rationalism and empiricism, just looking at these uh, at these top two areas, uh, we have to realize that the problem that man has is he's finite, and his amount of knowledge or experience is extremely limited. Uh, if you think all the sand and all the universe, the knowledge that man has is probably no more than two grains of sand, and I'm being generous. Now, some of you are familiar with this chart. This was one of the. Uh, this is a chart that uh, I first ran across about, I don't know, 40 years ago in um, uh, Charlie's uh, framework series. I don't even know who originally developed this, but it's a chart that describes the limitations of empirical knowledge. Now it looks a little confusing at first, and so I'm going to, uh, if I can remember how to do this, I want to enlarge this just a little bit. See if that worked. There we go. We'll just move around a little bit. Okay. On this on um, this left axis, it goes from top to bottom. You see it says logarithms to the base 10, what is that, 10 size in centimeters. Basically what that means is it starts as small as we can possibly observe, even with the aid of instruments, and goes upward and gets larger and larger and larger, until it gets to the largest thing we can observe, with the, also with the use of instruments, which uh, would be galaxies so, and, and the universe. As you move from your smallest area, you get to the point where you get up to something around the size of one centimeter, and these things you, are directly observable. And you can directly observe... Uh, many things up to the size of the sun or maybe the solar system, but everything else you have to use an instrument, so it's secondary, uh, secondary observation. Then going across the bottom, we also have, uh, the, we have time measurements. And so we start with the smallest possible time increment, which we can measure through uh, time-lapse photography, things like that, and break things down to the smallest time. But we can't see that. It happens so fast that we can't see it. We can only slow it down through photography and then measure it. So, again, it's dependent upon instruments until we get up to about uh, here where we're at one second of time. And then we have an hour, a year, and then the historical period. So up to... uh, let's say, 70, 80 years, you can have direct observation in terms of time. But once you get beyond those 80 years, if it's too small, you have to use an instrument. If it's too large, you have to rely on observations from other people through their diaries and through history and things of that nature. But that only takes you so far. But once you get beyond the historical period and you get uh, out beyond that, then... uh, you're, you have to rely upon upon something else. So what we have here are the limitations of the um, 
of the system. So let me back up just a little bit. The area in that's represented by the yellow shaded area represents that which can be observed through the use of some sort of in- instrument. The area in the blue just represents everything that is measured uh, in terms of size by everything from about a, uh, a little bit less than a centimeter up to the size of mountains and uh, in terms of time, in terms of a, a second up to the length of our, of our lifetime. And then that's extended a little bit by historical observations of others. So man's direct knowledge of anything is limited by that box, that blue box. Uh, Beyond that, he can see a few other things through the aid of instruments, but everything else, everything else, everything that uh, goes beyond instruments, it's all just deductions or conjecture. You're just guessing. Man can only directly know what's in the box, and he can only indirectly know through instruments what's in the yellow, but that leaves a tremendous amount of data out there that man can't know either directly or indirectly. He just guesses at it. And unless you have an eyewitness to tell you what goes on, you're just guessing, and one person's guess isn't any better than another person's guess, and everybody's guess is going to be determined by whatever baggage they bring to the starting point. And if you bring to the starting point the baggage that there is no God, then when you unpack your bags, you're going to end up with a material sort of universe. If you come with the starting point that there is a God and he has spoken, then you, you're, you understand and you interpret what's, what's in this, the shaded areas in terms of God's word. He sets the framework for being able to under, understand these things. So this, by the way, this is the, I got this from Charlie last week. This is the latest uh, installation uh, of this uh, chart. So he said, man is created to have dominion over nature, uh, and it starts in the garden with correspondence uh, where God created, uh, the correspondence that God created between many of man's empirically based conceptions and nature's design. So God designs man's brain to be able to relate and understand what God creates, and what God communicates. These things didn't happen autonomously and independently of each other. second thing is that the scientific method requires special additions in order to get beyond the shaded area. And this is dependent upon one's worldview, or we could say one's fantasy. If you have an atheistic fantasy, then you're going to go one way. If you have an agnostic fantasy, you go another way. You have a blend of different things, a Hindu fantasy or a Muslim fantasy, then you're going to end up in different things, and you're going to have different deductions and different conjectures. So here you are in this chart, and you're the believer on the right, and you're talking to this unbeliever on the left, and he's committed to unbelief. And that means he's been, he's been sifting and interpreting and evaluating all of his experiences through this grid that there is no God and that there is no absolute truth. And you, you on the other hand, are over here, and you believe that there is a God and there's absolute truth. Uh, to what do you appeal in order to establish truth? Is your common ground going to be reason? No. 
Because then you're saying you're going to leave the authority. You go back to this chart. Let me take you right back to the our whole knowledge chart here. If you go above the the line above Revelation, you've compromised Revelation because you're look you're appealing to something other than God's word as the ultimate authority for truth. Is the ultimate authority for truth in history? See, there are some people who think that, and there's some fine works written by some fine men in terms of of uh, apologetics. And they believe that all you need to do is demonstrate the historicity of the scriptures and you can convince unbelievers of the truth. Trouble is, an unbeliever operating in mysticism just says, no, that's not true, I know, I know different. Because the issue isn't logic. The issue is a spiritual decision. So, before we go any further, I want to give you four points, four points, before we get into looking at the uh, uh, arguments for the existence of God, four points you need to keep in mind when you think about these things. The first is that in terms of common ground, each of these arguments, each of the arguments for the existence of God, we have the cosmological argument, you've heard these names before, which is basically cause uh, or effect to cause, the teleological argument, which is the design argument that gets a lot of press today, the design argument, the moral argument, the argument that because man has a sense of right and wrong and believes in absolutes that there must be an absolute lawgiver, the anthropological argument or man-based argument that because man is different from everything else in creation that that, that means that there must be a, a special uh, creator who designed him. Uh, then you have the ontological argument. Now, each of these arguments presuppose that there's a common ground between the believer and the unbeliever that's either going to be reason or history. Now, what happen- what's the problem there? If the common ground is up above that line, above Revelation, then you've, you've compromised your authority by appealing to an idolatrous authority. Truth is not established by history. History can validate and can be a witness to truth, but it doesn't establish truth. It's not the authority. The, the authority isn't experience. The authority isn't reason and logic. There's a lot of people who reject out. You can present the most logical argument in the world, and guess what? They're not going to believe in God because they, it's not a logical problem. It's not a hist- historical problem. It's a spiritual problem. Okay, now let me go back to that other chart I had. So if you appeal to reason, experience, or intuition, what you've done is you, you, you basically said, okay, I'm going to step out of my truth zone, and I'm going to go over to this pagan unbeliever who's thinking consistently within his system, and he's going to say, okay, this is what I, I believe establishes truth. And you're going to go over there, and what have you done? You've compromised your truth. Rather than, in terms of a strategy, you can say, okay, well, let's just think about what you just said establishes truth, and let's see if there's any problems with that. Can you really live on that basis? Is, or, or, or does that have problems? It's like what I like to do if somebody brings up the issue of, of uh, the problem of evil in history, and they say, 
you Christians, you just, you, how can you believe in a good God when all these horrible things have happened in history? Some say, well, you know, that, that's a little bit difficult to understand, but I want to know that if you don't have a God, how can you even talk about a good God or a bad God or be critical of a Christian or, or even uh, complain about suffering? Because it seems to me that if you believe in the survival of the fittest, that that implies a struggle and the unfit must die in order for the fit to continue the evolution on the planet. So for you, it seems to me evil and suffering and death and struggle are really good things because you can't advance up the evolutionary uh, ladder if you don't have death. So you've got a real problem. Your problem's much worse than mine. So how do you handle the problem of evil. How can you even talk about it being evil when it's what produces uh, growth in advance? And, and what that's done is you, you, you start to peel off this camouflage of fantasy that they put over uh, God in the box back in the corner, and it's a way of getting them to think about what they, what they have said without giving up your belief in Christian, because you know something they don't know, and that is that Somewhere deep, deep down inside their soul, they know God exists, and they don't want to know that. So let's look at these arguments for the existence of God, just so we uh, can understand. Now, these do have some value. If somebody's positive, and they're moving towards a belief in God, then, like most things in apologetics, it has more to do with building, strengthening the confidence of believers that they're believing truth than it does with, with unbelievers. So if somebody's moving in the direction of belief in God, then these will have some value. But if they're, if they're set against it, like some of those folks that, um, 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 what's his name uh, in, the, um, in the film? What? Yeah, Ben Stein. Now, some of the guys that Ben Stein talked to, they just go off the charts. And then, then you see Christopher Hitchens and others, and they get, they get challenged, and they just go ballistic because if they're wrong, the eternal penalty is pretty serious. And so they just don't want to face that. So the first, uh, the first argument here is the cosmological argument uh, for the existence of God. And this points out that the universe around us is an effect. Uh, so there must be some adequate cause of that effect. Now, I've put three presuppositions up there that are really embedded within this argument. If you study philosophy, you'll realize that these arguments have been constructed and reconstructed and re-argued and many, many different ways because there's always somebody in the next generation who figures out some flaw in the argument. That's why I said these arguments are not Romans 1, 19 to 20. They are ways that we have sought to explain them in terms of reason and logic, but Romans 1, 19 and 20 isn't saying that you come to that knowledge of God internally and externally through understanding these arguments. It is something that is embedded within the human soul and something that is embedded within creation. So presuppositions here are every effect has a cause. How do we know that? Have you seen every effect? You go back to the chart I just showed you. Observation has limitations. 
How do you, there may be some effect out there that doesn't have a cause. How do you know that? Just because you've measured 5,000 effects and they all had causes doesn't mean the 5,001st effect has a cause. So you see there's, there's these assumptions sneak in there uh, that we don't necessarily think about. Um, second assumption is that the effect caused depends on the cause for its existence. Ah, but what is existence? Another big question. And nature, and it also has an assumption that nature can't originate itself. Now, I think that some of these are valid. They're just presuppositions. doesn't mean that they're not valid. Um, and so the th- third point here is that if something now exists, such as the universe, then it either came from nothing or it came from something. Think about that. That's just one of those BFOs, blinding flash of the obvious. You know, something, it's, if there's something, it either came from something or it came from nothing. If it came from nothing, you have to explain how nothing can generate something. If it came from something, that something must be eternal because ultimately you get in this, well, what created that and what created that and what created that? Eventually you get into this infinite regression. So the something eternal could either be the universe itself which means that the ultimate reality is just matter. That's known as materialism. Uh, and the universe would have to be eternal. Or, uh, or you have chance as an eternal principle within the universe, and everything is purely random, which means that how can you have any basis for right or wrong or morals or ethics or law if everything is pure random and every human being is just an accidental uh, their existence, they're just nothing more than an accidental uh, blob of protoplasm that just came into existence. So option one then that you're left with is everything came from something or nothing. And to say that the cosmos came from nothing means that it is self-created. But there's a logical contradiction there because it is, if it created itself to come into existence, how did it get there to create itself? So you get into this uh, uh, cycle of self-destruction there and illogic. For something to be self-created, it must exist and not exist at the same time. How can something exist and not exist at the same time? Wait a minute, wait a minute. See what I just did? What did I do? Anybody catch what I just did? I brought in the law of non-contradiction out of logic, which is the, the logical principle that something can't be and not be at the same time. We haven't even proved that. That's appealed to, what did I just do? I appealed to reason, autonomous reason, as opposed to appealing to the Scripture. So, oops, we just, but, but most people you talk to are not sharp enough to notice that you just trip yourself up. So, uh, for something to be, um, something is either created, by it either self-creates, or it's created from, from something else. So, the second option is that, uh, a second option that it's just an ongoing state of existence uh, is, a, is a view known as the steady state theory, which isn't so popular anymore, that the universe just, oh, but this has problems with things like the, Law of thermodynamics. Now, remember, for those of you who it's been a long time since you studied physics, there's two laws of thermodynamics, and there's a difference between a law and a theory, right? Uh, 
Okay, a law, law of thermodynamics says that matter is neither created or destroyed. When did that come into effect? Before Genesis 1-1? Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day? At the end of the sixth day, God creates a finite amount of mass and energy. The creation week is not subject to the physical laws that are in effect after creation, because that's when he's creating them. The second law of thermodynamics is that everything is running from a state of order to disorder, what they call entropy, which means it's just non-usable energy. It's going from a state of order to disorder. So if, if the universe is infinite and it's been running down over an infinite amount of time, how much energy is left? None. We ran out of gas an infinite time period ago. Uh, I went by a lot of you really fast. It's late at night. Okay, if you start off with a finite amount of energy and it's been running down for an infinite amount of time, you ran out of gas an infinite amount of time ago. And so nothing would be here. So that's a... the whole theory of Darwinism and the eternality of matter is just a, a major contradiction with uh, the law of uh, both the first and second laws uh, of thermodynamics. So the other problem with that view is that there's uh, no evidence at all to support it. It's outside that field. It's just pure conjecture. Now, some people might say, well, doesn't the law of cause and effect apply to God? Well, if you start with the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible is an eternally existent God. So once again, you have to go with what does the Bible say? The Bible says God is self-existent. He's not self-caused. He's self-existent. What's God's personal name? It's Yahweh. It comes from the Hebrew verb Hayah, which means to be. God said, when Moses said, well, who should I say uh, sent me? God says, tell them I am sent you. What does your name mean? I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. So he doesn't have a beginning or an end, so he is outside of the boundary of creation. So he's not subject to creation laws, and he's not subject to the law of cause and effect because he is outside. He's not in this chain of being that we have where we get this sort of infinite uh, regression. Robert Jastrow, who was uh, the founder and director of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies, and he was agnostic, stated, a sound explanation may exist for the explosive birth of our universe, thinking of the Big Bang, but if it does, wait a minute, if it does, if a sound explanation exists, they haven't found it yet. Science cannot find out what the explanation is. See, there's a recognition, there's a limitation in science. Well, why do you put it before the Big Bang? Why don't you put it after the Big Bang? Why don't you put it maybe 18 billion years closer? He goes on to say, um, the scientist's pursuit of the past ends in the moment of creation. Wait a minute, what gives you the right to talk about creation? Nothing was created. It already existed. See, see how he subtly shifted and imported a Christian concept, a biblical concept, a Judeo-Christian concept, into his understanding of creation. So, if the universe was created, which he just admitted, 
then it's reasonable to conclude that there was a creator. What am I appealing to there? Reason again. See, that's where you get into a little trouble in some of these arguments. For everything that has a beginning needs a beginner. So your third option is, if you're faced with the existence of things, is the option of an eternal principle of chance or blind intelligence. In other words, just random chance. Everything's just a throw of the dice. And if you throw the dice long enough, you're going to come up with eyeballs and uh, molecular structure, and you're going to come up with uh, right and left-handed uh, amino acids. Funny thing is, they all have to come together at the same time, and nobody's been able to. The more we learn, the more microscopic we get, the more complex the entire universe becomes, and it's very difficult to explain increasing complexity on the basis of pure random chance, because the more complex it is, the longer it takes for any two things to accidentally come together. Now, um, so the option, the fourth option then, is that a, a creator God exists. Now, another way of looking at this is, I'm going to run through a little argument here. This may lose one or two of you, but that's okay. Um, starts off, the first statement is that there some limited changing beings exist. What are we starting with here? Rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, or revelation? We're starting with empiricism, that there's something exists, and, and somehow I'm right when I say you exist, that we're assuming I'm right. So to deny this requires some sort of uh, affirmation from an existing being. So to deny that beings exist is sort of self-defeating. That's where Descartes was. I think, therefore, I am. If he thought and he didn't exist, then how could he think? It's not logical. A second point is the present existence of every limited changing being is caused by another. Uh, the potentiality for existence can only be actualized by some existence beyond it. If you have an existing thing, then whatever makes it has to be able to uh, give existence to it. Otherwise, it's not existent. So whoever creates has to be able to impart uh, the quality of existence. Third, there cannot be an infinite regress of causes of being. If you go back infinitely, you've run out of, you, you've run out of gas again. Therefore, there, is, there must be a first cause of the present existence of these beings. Now, this is looking at cause and effect in a timeline. You can only go back so far. Therefore, it has to be a finite. The universe has to be finite. It can't be infinite because if it's infinite, we've run out of it again. So the first cause has to be infinite, necessary, eternal, simple, unchangeable, and one. And by comparing the beings supported by this line of argumentation with the God of the Scriptures, we conclude that they are identical. But it's not necessary to conclude they're identical. That's the problem. It gets you to an uncaused cause, which is what, or an unmoved mover, which is what Aristotle had. But getting from the unmoved mover to the triune uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a whole different move. But like I said, if somebody's already believing, this helps confirm their belief. But if they're an unbeliever, remember this, uh, the, import, the story about when, when Lazarus goes down to Abraham's bosom and uh, the rich man had died and the rich man's down in, in, in torments. And the rich man said to Father Abraham, he said, just just let Lazarus go back, become alive again, and go back and tell my brothers. 
And Abraham said, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, he's not going to believe somebody rose from the dead. See, when you appeal to empiricism and rationalism, you, the, all the authority we need is the Word of God. It's really simple. A lot of this sounds complex, and it's fun to talk about, and it's all of our uh, dendrites moving around. But um, uh, the, the issue is that God created people a certain way. They know God exists, and it's the authority of Scripture that, that really is, that, that is the ultimate appeal. And if they don't believe the Scripture, you can't marshal enough logic or enough empirical data to convince them that God exists. So just to wrap this up, uh, another way of stating this, an infinite number of moments cannot be traversed. That means you can't really have an infinite number of moments. If an infinite number of moments had to elapse before today, then today would never have come. See, we're just using logic here. If you have an infinite number of moments, we would never arrive at today. Now think about that before you go to sleep tonight. It might help you go to sleep tonight. But today has come. Therefore, an infinite number of moments have not elapsed before today. That means the universe must have had a beginning. But whatever has a beginning is caused by something else that doesn't have a beginning. Hence, there must be a cause or creator of the universe. Now, one other way of... Um, when I get in, this in here twice? Yeah, I must have duplicated it twice. Let me get through this to the next one. Okay. One other uh, form of the cause argument is if you exist right now, something has to be keeping you in existence. That first form of the argument has to do with time. But I'm talking about in a, any moment. In any moment, for this Bible to exist, something has to be keeping it into existence. So this is a vertical cause and effect having to do with the continuation of existence. So whatever exists would go into nothingness if it wasn't kept in existence. So something, that's a vertical cause and effect argument. And that was really articulated by, by Thomas Aquinas in the uh, Middle Ages. So I will, uh, we'll stop there and we'll come back next time and talk about the teleological argument, which is the design argument that's so pre uh, prevalent today. And I want to address this because so many people think, oh, if we can just get this into, into the science textbooks, then we can get people pointed in the right direction. But evidence of a super planner is not evidence of God. Once again, the teleological argument appeals to what? It appeals to experience. It appeals to some authority other than, ultimately than, other than Scripture. Now, is there design? Sure, all these things are there, but it sort of imports. Some of these have Trojan horses. And the Trojan horse is that the argument itself imports a presupposition that God exists. And that's why they've been criticized along the way. So uh, it's just kind of fun, but I want to make sure that uh, we go through this. I've, I don't think I've ever taught this in this detail, so it needs to be out there somewhere, and you all need to learn it, so uh, you'll make a good classroom. Uh, we have to remember, though, that God is in charge, and so he is the one who tells us how everything came into existence and what its purpose is, and that's how we get to the cross. And that's how we understand that man's basic problem is sin, and that the cross solves the problem of sin, and God will bring everything in the future to a resolution. And that whole picture hangs together because of the inner consistency of the Word of God. So let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, think about uh, how we communicate to unbelievers, to people who are convinced of their own fantasy world, and that, that it just doesn't ultimately hold water 
and all they have is wishful optimism, and there's no no certainty no matter how much they try to convince themselves, and the only certainty comes uh, from your word because you are the one who created and have informed us of it, and so we can have certainty and truth and true knowledge because of what you have revealed to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.